Marsha P. Johnson, the P stands for Pay It No Mind, on July 6, 1992, a body was pulled from the Hudson River in New York City off of the West Village Piers. How did Marsha end up in the Hudson? She was well known within the LGBTQ community in New York City, especially in Greenwich Village, and as well as around the world as an actress, a drag queen, an entertainer, and one of Andy Warhol's models. And while she may have been and even still be a name unknown to many, to the LGBTQ community, she was a pioneer for justice and equal rights. Marsha was one of seven children born to Malcolm Michael Sr. and his wife, Alberta Michaels, the fifth child to be exact. She was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey, roughly an hour or so from New York City. Marsha graduated high school and immediately enlisted in the United States Navy, and while her time in the Navy has been described as brief, I'm unable to really find out how long she actually served for. Marsha wound up moving to Greenwich Village with little money and not much more than the clothes on her back, and there was where she adopted the name Marsha P. Johnson, where the P stood for, as I said before, pay it no mind, in reference to the numerous questions she would get about her gender. Now understand this, we're talking about the 1960s and 70s, if I haven't made this clear, okay? So this is a time when being gay or cross-dressing, as they were calling it at the time, were considered legal offenses, and they were crimes that one could be jailed for, charged money for, I mean, really brought up on charges. Like many gay and trans people, Marsha wasn't able to safely be who she was publicly without fear of repercussion. But if you have listened to any interviews or read any articles about Marsha's spirit, then you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that she didn't care as much about rules getting broken. Marsha cared that people were being mistreated or that they had no place to go or no food in their stomachs. So she made it her life's work to ensure that these people were fed and had a place to stay. But we'll get into that a little more in just a bit. I'm your host, Catherine Galvin, true crime enthusiast and psychic medium. Before I bring you today's story, I want to remind all of you that Intuitive Development 101 is officially open for registration. The course is six weeks long and runs from July 20th through August 24th. We'll meet every Wednesday from 8 p.m. Eastern Time to roughly about 9 o'clock, and each session will be recorded in case you can't make it to the live classes or in the event that you just like to review any time in the future. This is a beginner course, so it's for the person who's just starting out to even not really sure if they're psychic or desires to start connecting more intentionally to their intuition and to make sense of things that they've seen, heard, or even just known about without explanation. This is for the person who thinks, am I psychic or just freaking crazy? And in the six weeks, we'll be going over how to connect safely, what it means to be an empath, how to connect as a medium as well as a psychic, and we'll get to practice with each other, which is the most fun part. I like to keep class sizes small, so if you're ready, it's time to run headfirst into this experience and take control of your intuition and its many benefits. And you don't have to intend to use your ability to be a professional psychic or medium. For many, learning to control their intuition is as useful a tool as learning how to cook. Not something I've really mastered. <laughs> Being in touch with your higher self will make life so much easier for you. And if you're like me, it'll help to eliminate the fear around energies that you just don't understand, as well as quiet some feelings of anxiousness you may be experiencing in your daily life. By the way, the cost is a sliding scale basis to ensure that this is accessible to everyone who wants to learn to connect better. 
For anyone who feels they may not necessarily need a 101 or have already taken one with me, but want to do more, beginning July 1st, Intuitively Aligned will finally be open via the Murder and Mediumship Patreon. The new tier will include access to the same weekly and monthly energy forecasts as other patrons receive, as well as two practice circles each month. One to focus more on strengthening connection as a medium, while the other is more on growing psychic ability. And I am so excited to introduce this tier and put some emphasis on creating a safe space and supportive community for growth and new friendships. So back to the show. Not long after moving to New York City, Marcia met 12-year-old Sylvia Rivera. Sylvia can be heard in interviews talking about how Marcia made her feel loved, treated her like a daughter, and did more than show her the ropes of street life and how to stay safe while prostituting herself. She also showed her how to love and accept herself exactly as she was, without feeling the need to explain who she was to anyone. This friendship would prove to be one that could and certainly would move mountains within the LGBTQ community. On June 28, 1969, a department of the police known as the Police Moral Squad, as you can imagine, morals weren't really their high focus, was sent to raid Stonewall Inn, a bar owned and operated by the Mafia at the time. The Mafia would pay off police officers to kick all of the LGBTQ community, all of those people, I'm so sorry, out of the bar to arrest them, harass them, remove them by any means necessary. And this, interestingly enough, has a little bit to do with the part with part of what I saw in connecting with Marsha before researching her death. However, more on that is coming. When the police officers raided Stonewall that night, it said that a large number of people from the LGBTQ community were all there to collectively mourn the death of Hollywood star Judy Garland, who had passed just a few days prior. As the inn filled with LGBTQ persons, the police moral squad showed up to raid it. However, this time, when they showed up, Patrons of the bar decided they weren't going to stand for this, and they fought back against the officers who came in throwing patrons up against the wall, spewing profanities, racial slurs, homophobic slurs, throwing punches, arresting people left and right, and the patrons essentially said, no, nope, we're not doing this anymore, and outside of the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village for the first time in history, the LGBTQ community fought back against the police and a riot ensued. Some accounts of the Stonewall riot have Marsha starting it by throwing a shot glass at a mirror, while others have her dropping a very heavy purse onto a police car and shattering a window. It's not known that she even did either of those things, but she was there that night, and she was not about to be pushed around by the cops that night either. The riot itself lasted until about 3 or 4 in the morning, but in that amount of time, a fire was lit that would not be put out. The day after Stonewall Riot, the fight for gay rights was officially in full force. Protests, riots, marches, sit-ins were endless. The Gay Liberation Front was formed within two weeks, and there was no going back. The night of Stonewall, the community felt as if it had nothing left to lose, and they were sick of being bullied and put out on the streets and arrested for what they wore, how they identified, or who they danced with. And it's so hard to keep from going into exactly what started as a result of Stonewall, but this is about Marsha, so forward we go. Not long after the Stonewall riot, and again, this is in 1968, Sylvia and Marsha created a program called STAR, which stood for Street Transvestite Activist Revolutionaries. The idea behind STAR was to give it was to give the homeless and trans youth a place to sleep, to feel safe, to fit in, and to unify. And in the beginning, they provided a truck for the young trans people to sleep in and made sure that they were always fed. 
After a while, in an incident with the truck driving off with some of the kids sleeping inside of it, they rented an old rundown building that they had basically fixed up and paid rent to keep for their own use in order to house the trans youth off of the streets. This lasted for about eight months without electricity or running water, but they all had a place to feel protected and unified and feel as if they weren't alone, and some of them probably probably for the first time in their lives. Now, keep in mind during all of this that this really isn't all that long ago, and I know that I said it already, but it's worth repeating. These two trans women were hustling or prostituting themselves not just for their own survival, but for the well-being of teenagers who had no place to go, no home, who had no one to love them, protect them, or to feed them. Sylvia and Marsha provided for these young people just because they felt called to. And there are, no matter where you research her, no matter where you look up information about her, various, like numerous, numerous accounts of her sharing her last dime, her last penny, her last piece of food, just to help these people who were struggling. So over the next decades of her life, Marsha remained a fierce advocate for trans rights and for trans voices, while trans people were by and large left out of the representation in the fight for equal rights. She was quoted as saying, darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time the gay brothers and sisters got their rights, especially the women. She was also in a performing um, community that I don't believe I mention in this episode, so I want to take a moment to talk about that. She was in a performing troupe, basically, called The Hot Peaches, where she sang and performed worldwide. She was very well-known, and she, I mean, she was famous. She modeled for Andy Warhol. She and Hot Peaches was a drag theater company in New York City. She modeled for Andy Warhol in 1975, a series known as Ladies and Gentlemen, which, by the way... She wasn't named as a model and was left anonymous, further stripping her of her identity once again. Marsha was famous on the streets of New York, but also throughout parts of the world. And when she showed up to a store in Greenwich Village to see a screen print of her from Andy Warhol's collection, the owner of the store actually threw her out, belittling her and making sure that she knew she did not belong there. Can you even imagine your featured on an image for sale in that store and you're not even allowed inside of it. It's such shit. This wasn't unusual for Marsha, though, as she was used to being kicked out and ostracized. And this is part of why she and Sylvia created Star so, so many years ago and why they continued to fight for and be a voice for trans rights. And I should mention, too, that Star only lasted for about two years altogether. But in that amount of time, they really established a safe haven for people to compete to continue to build community and feel, again, like they were unified. In her lifetime, she had been arrested well over 100 times, but continued to survive and to aid others in their survival through hustling and through sex work. Now, two years before her death, she was actually, she found out she was HIV positive, but was publicly outspoken about it within her community, as during this time, if you had AIDS, no one thought you were safe to even be around. People were afraid of others with the disease. The diagnosis was so much more daunting back then than it is now in 2022, but they weren't even fully certain of how the disease was transmitted, so people would literally avoid hugging those who were HIV positive for fear of catching it. In a documentary entitled The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson on Netflix, it's talked about how early in the, 19, in the 1990s, bodies of trans persons were washing up on the shores of the Hudson near the Christopher Street Pier left and right. It wasn't news to hear of another trans body in the river or even the street. You had deaths via prostitution, 
murder, suicide, and it wasn't unusual to occur. Many talk about how the pier itself was in horrendous condition and that people could literally fall right through it while walking along it. It didn't even have to be foul play, just plummeting through the pier itself. Not only that, but the police really didn't care at all about the gay population, let alone the trans population, let alone the black gay trans population. So their deaths weren't investigated. When Marsha was found near the Christopher Street Pier on July 6, 1992, it's not shocking that no investigation was done. Just because no formal or proper investigation was being conducted, though, doesn't mean that her death went unheard of. Her death was declared a suicide, but that wasn't uncommon either. No investigation needed to be performed when the death was a suicide, and as far as the police were concerned, the death of a loud trans woman was hardly worth investigating. Marcia made herself heard when she felt there was an injustice, and Marcia's own voice wasn't the only one that could have gotten her into trouble, though. In the same documentary, you meet Marsha's roommate, Randy. And according to Marsha, just three weeks before her death, she's on video saying that Randy is drawing attention to them because of the organizations he's working with and because he's trying to take Christopher Street Pride Celebration, known as Pride now, back from the mafia. He was asserting that the mafia ran all of the vendors and shows and venues that made all of the money from the Christopher Street celebration, and Randy wanted that money back in the hands of the gay community. I mean, rightfully so. He was specifically looking at a bouncer at Stonewall and that person's assistant. And and like I said, remember, this is about... um, This is where you're seeing the police and the mob or the mafia, and I'm sure someone's going to correct me on them being different, but I mean, for this sake, I don't really care the difference between the mob and the mafia. No good people were in operation of these businesses, and the police, the dirty police, were absolutely involved. And this is worth mentioning because it comes up, it's come up for me a couple of times intuitively, but the people who don't believe that there can be cops involved in this type of thing, just remember that cops wear hoods with the KKK. Cops wear hoods with the KKK, and cops might as well be wearing hoods now. Not all cops, but a lot of them. The evening of July 4th, 1992, Marsha was supposed to be meeting up with a friend of hers known as Miss Kitty, and she never showed up. Intuitively, I feel she did pass away the evening of July 4th or really early in the morning, July 5th, those hazy hours where it may be one day or the other. But I absolutely, she had said, so honey, we're wondering when the mob is going to be coming with the bullets on that video, looking dead ass into the camera. And it gives me chills because that's exactly what happened. So now in connecting with Marsha, before any research was being done on my end, I felt a few things immediately. And the very first thing that I felt was a push in the middle of my back. I felt like it had some force behind it for certain, and I also got the sense that there was a struggle between Marsha and a few other men. The phrase gun to head kept coming into my mind as well, but I'm not sure if it was a physical gun to her head or like saying it was like he had a gun to my head, like there was no way of getting out of the situation. Something else that nagged at me was that it was possible that there was a greater threat involved, like the mob or a dirty cop. But again, in this instance, and let's face it, a lot of instances, it feels as if they are one and the same. So when she was pulled from the water, eyewitnesses spoke of a gash or a hole in her head. And her body was never identified by a family member, and her sister appears on the documentary The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson stating that she refused the right to see her sister's body. She was refused the right. I'm so sorry. She asked to see Marsha's body, but was refused the right to see it. 
And I'm not sure what to make of that, as I can't say with full confidence that it was to hide anything. Intuitively, I believe it's because law enforcement just didn't want to bother with her or with her family, especially of this homeless trans person who washed up in the Hudson. She just wasn't important or worth their time. They were too busy and Marsha didn't matter enough. She wasn't straight or white, so what did it matter as far as they were concerned? Further, I'd like to say that the law enforcement pursued leads around her death, but they honestly didn't. And you can easily find footage of protests about Marsha's death, people screaming inches from the faces of police officers that they needed to do their effing jobs and find out who killed their friend and sister Marsha. However, as I said before, numerous bodies were washing up left and right, both in the Hudson and laid out in the streets. So no one could do anything, no one who could do anything about it really cared to give it time and eventually they came in and cleaned up the streets of Greenwich Village and kicked all of the homeless and trans persons out of there. So was Marsha murdered? Yes. While many theories exist about what happened to her, I believe she was being chased by men, specifically white men, who were likely dirty cops and also members of the mob. Go ahead and tell me that never happens. But I do believe she was pushed into the water and I believe she drowned in the Hudson and was alive when she was shoved in. I do also believe she may have hit her head and that's why she was unable to get out, but shot? I I really don't think so. And there was a coroner who was later called in by Victoria Cruz, a friend of Marsha's and a victim advocate for the New York City Anti-Violence Project, who had her case reopened in 2017. And this coroner that she got in touch with determined that the skin based on the photos had become removed from her body as she lay in the water. And I really think that he's correct there and that he also was being honest in his findings. I mean, he had nothing to lose and it it, it felt very authentic to me. A lot of my information did come from these various documentaries and I do really encourage you to watch them. This is a piece of history they don't teach in schools and you absolutely should know it. I believe her story will become more and more known over time. I don't believe her file will ever be legally changed from suicide to homicide, but Marsha Payette-No-Mind Johnson is a name that should be in school history books. She is a true hero and deserves answers. And that's all I have for tonight. And I know this story is so much more involved than that, but in the interest of time, that's where we're going to wrap it up. If you're interested in learning more about Marsha, please visit the links in the show notes. Check out the documentaries Life and Death of Marsha P. Johnson found on Netflix, as well as Pay It No Mind, The Life and Times of Marsha P. Johnson, which I was able to find on YouTube. Again, if you're seeking a private reading, you can always head to my website linked in the show notes and use code TikTok10 for 10% off. I'll be back next week, but as for now, be safe, be kind, be loving, and come back for more of murder and mediumship.